Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you. And just a couple of additional things that Randy just mentioned to me that he neglected to mention. Uh, if you want to participate in supporting the work in the Dominican Republic uh, during the virus pandemic, you can either go to keystonegives.com, which takes you right to our giving page, dot org. You go to keystone.com, you'll be giving money to someone else, but maybe they need it too. You never know. I mean, seriously, right? Uh, and then uh, the other thing is you can also give at the Next Steps desk. On your way in, uh, if you're here in the room, and hello to those of you joining us online, uh, you received what we like to call a communion chalice. That's actually what they called it on the website we ordered them from. And I swore we would never use these. And then there was a pandemic. So at the end of the service, I will have an opportunity to take communion together. And if you're watching online, I just take a moment and grab some bread and some juice. Um, and you can participate uh, with in that with us at the end of our time today. And I also just, because it'll break the mood if I do this at the end, um, it's kind of tricky to get the wafer out. I practiced three times and succeeded once. So uh, what you have to do is there's two levels of plastic. There's like a little tiny cellophane one, and that'll access the communion wafer. And then if you pull off the larger, you can get at the liquid. Um, and of course, uh, if you're visiting with us at Keystone, uh, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to take communion with us at the end of our time today. So with that, uh, this week we get to conclude a three-part series that we've called The Perfect Blend. And as many of you know, um, it's been my attempt to speak into the divisive intersection of religion and politics in our world today. I ran into a friend uh, who uh, attends Keystone and he, he said, hey, I'm so glad that we're finally talking about the elephant in the room. And then he looked at me and he goes, or the donkey in the room, depending on your, your preference. And I was like, I'm so using that, that's awesome. Anyway, if you were with us for the past few weeks, you may recall that there's a question that drives this entire series forward, and it's specifically directed at those of us who are followers of Jesus. The question goes like this. Now, are you willing to put your faith filter in front of your political filter? In other words, as you engage in conversations about politics, both during the election and then really moving forward into the future, are you willing to be a Christian first and then a Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent second. Uh, now, as a reminder, my goal in this series is not to convince you to abandon your preferred political party. Uh, rather, I'm suggesting that if we really want to take what Jesus said seriously, we mustn't allow our nation's divided political climate to divide our church. Unity was a big deal to Jesus, and unity should be a big deal to us as well. In fact, shortly before he was crucified, Jesus prayed that his church would exhibit unity amid diversity. He prayed that we would be one. And achieving this oneness necessitates that we figure out a way to love unconditionally while at the same time disagreeing politically. All right, that said, uh, to get us going with our conversation today, we get to revisit one of my favorite sermon illustrations of all time, buckle up friends, it involves a 1982 DeLorean, and you know the one I'm talking about, right? Uh, from the movie Back to the Future, what might just be the greatest film of all time, and no, I didn't go to film school. Uh, yeah, uh, as you may recall, this is no ordinary automobile because it contains a flux capacitor capable of delivering 1.21 gigawatts of energy and turning that into the ability to travel through time. Now, just so we're clear, I'm well aware that time travel is impossible so far. But just for fun, imagine that you and I had just enjoyed lunch at Applebee's together, 
And on our way out of the restaurant, we happened upon a wide-eyed, white-haired scientist in a hazmat suit who offers us the keys to the aforementioned DeLorean capable of temporal displacement. Hmm. On a whim, we decide to visit ancient Rome in the year 82 AD. And, and you know, I've never actually been to Rome, and I figure if we're going to see it, we might as well see it in its prime. Uh, so anyway, upon our arrival in ancient Rome, we find our way to the Colosseum near the center of town. And here's an artist's rendering of what that would have looked like. Uh, more than 50,000 people have gathered to watch the gladiators battle like Russell Crowe style. You know what I'm talking about? Um, and, and now because I forgot to dress us in period-specific clothing, I'm of course wearing my puffy red vest. We are quickly identified as outsiders by Colosseum security and after a rather intense series of questions, confess that we are, in fact, visitors from the future. See, I just love this illustration. It's so good. Okay, the guards immediately lead us to the imperial box because they're convinced that Emperor Domitian, the Roman emperor at the time, would like to meet us. And upon learning that we came from the year 2020, and we tell him he'd rather not go back with us to that year because of a bunch of stuff we won't get into, right? Uh, he asks us something that he's been wondering about he asks us what becomes of the Roman Empire by the year 2020. And you and I make eye contact, and we realize that what we're about to report isn't exactly what the emperor would be expecting. Nevertheless, we share that a few hundred years from their time, around the year 400 AD, the Roman Empire, as he knows it, ceases to exist. Moreover, by the year 2020, many of the things that the empire celebrated, including the way they structured society and the way they saw the world, uh, those ideas had been replaced and displaced and influenced by the teachings of a guy that Domitian had probably heard about, a first century rabbi by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, after a, a pregnant pause... Domitian slams his wine goblet on the table and bursts into laughter <laughs> because what we've just described would have been absolutely impossible for him to conceive of in the first century. Because in his world, at that time, Rome was at the peak of its influence in the world. It was the unchallenged global military superpower. And followers of Jesus in the year 82, they were a powerless group of idealists who'd aligned their hopes and dreams with a crucified rabbi from a small town in a corner of the Roman Empire called Israel. Moreover, the strategy of these Christians, and if you could even call it that, their strategy for life included things like, well, loving their neighbors and praying for their enemies. I mean, in Domitian's mind, how in the world could a movement like that, a group with no notable political influence, property, or wealth, a people who literally in the first century were being actively persecuted by the Roman Empire, how could they go on not only to outlive the glories of Rome, but actually change the world? It was unthinkable. And it raises all sorts of questions, not only then, but now, because that's actually what happened. And with the rest of our time today, I want to suggest how it happened. I actually called this talk, How to Change the World, little... Uh, you know, spoiler alert there, but yeah, because I'm convinced that it happened before and it can actually happen again. And I'll begin by reminding you of something profound we noted last week. It's something that I originally heard years ago during a presentation by a pastor named Tony Evans. Here's, here's what he said right in the middle of his talk. He said, Jesus didn't come to take sides. 
in any of the political disagreements of his day or ours. He actually came to do something way bigger. He came to take over. He invited his followers to step into something bigger and something better than any political party, something that flew above the mess so often made by human politics, something he called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And you'll see this regularly when you read the Gospels, but Jesus used these two terms interchangeably. It was his way of of describing what life looks like when things are the way God wants them to be. And Jesus called his followers, people like you and me, to look beyond human political platforms to the truth he revealed about God's will for our lives. And it's really important to him that we do so because there has never been and never will be a human-designed political platform that totally aligns with the priorities of the kingdom of God, even though all political parties have some alignment with the priorities of the kingdom of God. And by the way, we said this last week too, but it's worth repeating, that's why thoughtful followers of Jesus today can rightly find themselves on different places on the political spectrum with loyalties to different political strategies. And that's why there will always be times when followers of Jesus need to resist some things that their primary allegiance to the kingdom of God demands that they resist. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that this reality was front and center in the lives of those first followers of Jesus. Early Christians refused to line up with the political establishments of their day whenever those establishments pushed them to violate the teachings of Jesus. And initially, uh, this resistance was culturally disturbing, but eventually it actually began to threaten the very fabric of the Roman Empire. So the empire did what establishment does whenever it's challenged. The empire decided to strike back. (laughs) I was waiting all week for that moment. It's so good. I mean, it's like Back to the Future and Star Wars in the same sermon. Nerds rejoice. We're on fire this morning. Okay. Anyway, in response to being challenged, the Roman Empire began to target the church for persecution. Now, it's fascinating to note that early Christians were seen as threatening for a reason that is a bit counterintuitive to us. They were seen as threatening because they actually embodied some of Jesus' teachings, including the one that said, all people have equal value. And we look at that and think, how in the world is that threatening? Well, stay tuned and I'll show you. But but practically, that meant that each week, classes of people whose circles rarely, if ever, intersected in Roman culture began to gather voluntarily to worship. The unity that they demonstrated amid their undeniable diversity was astonishing. There was simply no cultural precedent for it. In Jesus, a group of people who had little in common somehow overcame social norms, prejudices, racism, and separation to display unprecedented oneness in purpose and in mission. Now, uh, there's an early letter in the New Testament where a pastor named Paul records sort of the theological context, the, the why they did this for this practice in a letter to Christians living in the Roman province of Galatia. And we believe it was probably the earliest letter Paul wrote. But a few decades after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul wrote that in the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And most of us read those words and move right on by because, you know, we don't see that in its original context, those words were revolutionary. For hundreds of years, Jews had thought of themselves as God's chosen people. And they did that for a very good reason. They were God's chosen people. 
and he, and, um, but they had been called to be the people of the light in the world. And the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, they were seen in contrast as like the people of the dark, or they were on the dark side, however you want to do it. See, that was another Star Wars reference, all right? Yeah, yeah they saw the world through a different lens. They didn't know the one true God. They had different traditions and values. Jewish people actually thought of Gentile people as having cooties, okay? That's like a technical theological term. You can check it out later on Wikipedia. Um, but this meant that Jewish people wouldn't even enter the home of Gentiles. They wouldn't share meals with them. Gentiles to the Jewish people were outsiders, and they were the insiders. But Paul writes that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, really through the death and resurrection of Jesus, all that had changed. A new covenant relationship between God and people had been ratified when Jesus died on the cross. And now everyone, Jew and non-Jew, were invited to be a part of the kingdom of God. And the ethnic identity that had been a source of conflict and tension was no longer supposed to be a source of conflict and tension. In Jesus, a new kingdom had come to earth and it was for everyone everywhere and everyone everywhere was invited to enter the same way because as Paul writes in another one of his letters all have sinned and fallen short of God's expectations and all find salvation the same way through faith in Jesus and so Paul writes in effect what used to divide you has been overwhelmed by the one who has united you and as if that wasn't shocking enough that was just Paul's warm-up act, because as he continues to write, he notes that not in the kingdom of God, not only is there neither new nor Jew nor Gentile, there's also neither slave nor free. And Paul's original audience would have been fully indoctrinated into a worldview that said some people were born to rule and other people were born to be ruled. To them, slavery was, was just the way the world worked. It was self-evident, and it had been unquestioned throughout human history until Jesus questioned it. He taught his followers that God views slaves with the same dignity that he views masters. That, that in the kingdom of God, uh, slaves and masters, rich and poor, Roman citizens and non-citizens were all welcomed in as equals. And at this point, it's worth noting that 2,000 years later, we read these words and we think, well, that, isn't that kind of, kind of self-evident? Isn't that kind of obvious? But, but these ideas were anything but obvious in the first century, in the first century, Paul's words were subversive and Paul's words were dangerous. He concludes this section with a final contrast that had been removed in Christ. And, and this one hit closest to home, like literally everybody's home. Here's what he writes. Nor is there male nor female for you are all, and here's the word again, one in Christ Jesus. And if you spend any time around here, you, you'll likely remember that women in the first century and before had almost no status in the world, and especially in the Roman Empire. They couldn't own property, they couldn't access education. Even in wealthy households, the women were just a couple of clicks above slaves. But Paul writes that in God's kingdom, women had equal standing. And it's interesting because it's easy for us to miss the significance of these words, but for the first time in recorded history, in early Christian communities, women were being respected. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that women flocked to the early church in very practical ways. Jesus offered them a viable hope and a brighter future, not just for the life beyond this life, but right in the middle of this life. 
In fact, in preparing for today, one of the things I did was I, I reread a book that I absolutely love called The Rise of Christianity by a sociologist named Rodney Stark. And here's what he writes about women in the early church. It's so interesting. Uh, Stark notes that in the first century, Christian women enjoyed far greater marital security and equality than did her pagan neighbor. He goes on, there is virtual consensus among historians that women held positions of honor and authority within early Christianity. It's like historians affirm that, that Jesus did more for the status of women than really anyone in history. And that's so easy for us to forget 2,000 years later. It's easy for us to forget because the fact that women have inherent value has been self-evident to us for our whole lives, but it wasn't to them. And so when Paul writes, you are all one in Christ Jesus, it was a completely new way of thinking. And it was so disruptive that as it caught on, it began to threaten the cultural fabric of the Roman Empire, just like Jesus knew that it would. He knew that as the good news of his kingdom was preached, people's eyes would be opened and they would recognize a new and better way to be in the world. They would see themselves differently and they would see others differently. You see, Jesus didn't come to earth to suggest a cultural tweak. He came to launch a revolution. And that revolution is still unfolding today. And, and, and that's why it's so heartbreaking when a local church allows itself to be divided over human political parties, because one day the influence of our political parties will diminish and Jesus will still be king. And, and so the first follower of Jesus um, actively sought to embody the new kingdom values taught by Jesus. And as they did, and in spite of incredible resistance, Christianity continued to gain influence and meet resistance from the empire. In fact, history records that around the year 112 AD, there was a Roman magistrate, a Roman provincial governor by the name of Pliny the Younger. And he was charged by the emperor with halting the momentum of Christianity in the area he oversaw. And Pliny recognized that he must follow this edict. It came from the emperor. And if you didn't do what the emperor said, you died. Uh, but because he was curious, he does a bit of research into the practice of Christians. He was trying to figure out what exactly made Christians so threatening. And then he wrote a letter back to the emperor sharing what he learned and then asking for some clarification because he couldn't figure out why Christians were so threatening. And, and it's fun because the letters of Pliny the Younger actually have survived and we can still read them through the miracle of the internet today. But here are a few things that in the year 112 Pliny noted about early Christians. He wrote it this way. He said, the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. And we're reading that like, whoa, they met on Sundays before sunrise. Ooh, right? Now he goes on. Check out what else they did. He says, and they sing responsibly a hymn to Christ, to Jesus, as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath. So, so Pliny's like, okay, they gather on Sundays before sunrise, they sing songs to Jesus, okay, and then they take an oath. And, and you're thinking, okay, maybe that was where the problem lies. I mean, what was this oath that they were taking? And they would take it every time they gathered, and Pliny actually tells us. Here's what they took an oath. They took an oath not to commit fraud. Well, that, that feels like a good thing. Theft or adultery, not to falsify their trust or refuse to return 
a trust. And just imagine, like, you know, Pliny gets his guards, and they get some church leaders, and they kind of rough them up, and they bring them into, like, Pliny's back room, and he's like, so tell me, what happens at these meetings? And they're like, well, we promise to be good people. And he's like, huh, like, you, you are going to care for one another. Yeah, Jesus actually said that. He told us to carry one another's burden, so that's what we do. Hmm. Yeah. I can see why this is such a threat. So he writes this letter to the emperor. He's like, what in the world are you doing? He's, he says to the emperor, these are some of the finest people in the community. Why would we arrest them? I mean, all the other pagan religions, they're completely unconcerned with morality. That's why it's so hard to govern in this area, right? Their focus is just to kind of bribe the gods to keep them happy by giving them blood sacrifice. But, but Jesus seems to have taught his followers that, that there's a way that they must treat other people and that the way they treat other people matters to God. It's like if someone trying to rule, more Christians would be an asset, not a liability. Why in the world are we arresting them? That was Pliny's perspective, see, but what Pliny missed was, was the fact that as they grew in number, followers of Jesus were beginning to undermine the core values of the Roman Empire to sort of erode those values from the inside out because the culture of the Roman Empire worshipped things like strength and warfare and conquest and victory. It thrived by maintaining a stratified social structure that attached like relative value to people based on who you were, where you were born, who you were born to, how much money you had, and how much influence you had. And, and Jesus teaching that, that every single person ever has value because they were made in the image of God was nothing short of a cultural revolution. One more quote from a book because I'm on fire today. Uh, there's an author named Jordan Peterson, and he wrote a book back in 2018 called The 12 Rules for Life. Rule number 12, by the way, says, if your kids are skateboarding, leave them alone. That's a good rule. I'm telling you, we do that at my house all the time. But here's what he writes about Christianity's influence in the ancient world. He says, Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing. He says, rendering them equal before God and the law. The implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against, he says, impossible odds. He goes on, he says, Christianity insisted that even the king, like even the emperor, was only one among many. We forget, he says, the opposite was self-evident throughout most of human history. And in conclusion, in this section, he says, the society produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagan, even the Roman ones it replaced. And so in the decades following the resurrection of Jesus, the values of the kingdom of God swept through the Roman Empire like, and here's a relevant image, an airborne virus. And against all odds, a group of diverse individuals who had gathered around a common belief in Jesus, who he was and what he had accomplished through his death and resurrection. A group of people who had no territory, no military, no authority, no political power, no standing. That group went on to shape Western civilization. They changed the world. And so here's the thing. If those who came before us were somehow able to find common ground with one another, in and through the teachings of Jesus, common ground at the foot of the cross, in spite of the many things that divided them, then I'm convinced we can too. Their culturally disruptive unity shocked their world and their message eventually changed the world. 
And our culturally disruptive unity has the same potential today. And so all that to say, when in a few weeks you and I get a chance to vote, my encouragement to you would simply be to vote your kingdom of God-informed conscience. But in the meantime, and at all times, then let's do what we can to do what the early church did. Let's carry each other's burdens. Because as we said last week, when we do that, something happens in us that really can't happen any other way. Though we may never agree politically with someone, we can love them unconditionally. So let's listen and let's learn and let's love and together let's make our world a little more like Jesus wants it to be.